I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm the in-between generation. There's so many where we all are standing on. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. October 2022, at the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery in Toronto, installation crews are putting the finishing touches on an extraordinary exhibition. It's called Arctic Amazon, Networks of Global Indigeneity. It's multiple voices, multiple lived experiences, realities, histories, all kind of coming together from north to south relations, right? When you think about North America and Latin America, like it's as if they're divided, but in reality, it just courses. It began in 2019 with a gathering of Arctic and Amazonian artists and knowledge keepers. Indigenous people from these two apparently disparate regions came together and found they had a lot in common. Creating this connection with other worlds and other living forms, it is uh, urgent and necessary in these times we are living. And until now, who is sitting on the power chairs of the world has been white cisgender males. So we saw that it You can say that this is not working. Arctic Amazon was reborn in the fall of 2022 as an exhibition. Through the twin lenses of tundra and rainforest, it explores indigenous knowledge, tradition, history, and above all, the land. This one piece has a lot of, like, fur in it that's saturated with this really vibrant red. And what it feels like to me is like when we harvest a moose. I I feel like it's joyous because when we were kids, we live on rice and beans if we couldn't get a moose, you know. It was that important. And we would do it together, you know, take care of it. And it's also a very spiritual thing, too. Ideas producer Sean Foley brings us this documentary, Arctic Amazon, Secrets and Visions. And so the idiot strings are the tethers that your mom makes for you so you don't lose your mittens, which Uh people from the north really, they know what it is immediately, usually. I'm on the exhibition floor at the power plant in Toronto with Sonia Kelleher-Combs. She's an artist from Alaska of Inupiat and Athabascan ancestry. And this installation in particular is meant to represent the 35 villages that have credible claims against the Catholic Church, credible in the way that um, the Catholic Church acknowledges them. The installation title teases a cautious sort of smile out of me. It's called Idiot Strings, Credible. We know that there's many other communities within our state and all across the world who have been um, victims of 
the Catholic Church in many different ways, emotional, psychological, and physical abuse. And, um, you know, the ills of colonization, and, and I could go on and on. There are 40 idiot strings floating in midair, each one twisting and turning between the two mitten-like pouches they hold together. And when the installation is lit up, you see these intricately entwined shadows cast all over the ground. It has this whole other life, like this is just one shadow. I mean, they're all individuals, but they're all connected to each other, and one loss impacts more than just that one person. So the idea is that as the shadow is cast, you know, it's like it's a ripple effect right. it's in a way. I you mean, see them all sort of Yeah, they're all entangled. entangled. They're connected, like, and it can go off the board. It's not just about the people within this space, you right. know, or oh, the... Wow. The pairs of mittens are made of old maps from the United States Geological Survey. Maps of the communities with claims of abuse that the Catholic Church has deemed credible. But there's no thumb on any of them. They look like oblong cocoons open at the top. The sight of these shapes has raised some eyebrows. A lot of people um, think it's very phallic. I, I, I don't... It's, it's actually based on a design on our parkas. Basically, it's about lineage and, and continuation and perseverance and things like that. I'm, I'm really interested in um, representing our cultures as dynamic living cultures. You know, it's mm. not... And we're building on traditions every day, is mm-hmm. the way I like to think about it. We still wear these garments. We still, even if they're made out of modern materials and things like that, and also... Um, this idea of legacy and history and remembrance, and even if we've gone to boarding schools, we can still, we still are a part of this culture that, or, or other things, other kinds of trauma, separation, adoption. Yeah. And there's something so, uh, like, tender about the, the shape mm-hmm. and, the, and the idiot string and... It feels like there's just enough room for a little hand to go in there, mm-hmm. um, even though I know it's not, you know, a mitten. Yeah. Like when our kids were really little, they would have you'd put these. Yeah, they're just a sock. Yeah, a little right? hand sock. That, yeah. So that was immediately what came to mind yeah. for me when I saw mm-hmm. these. Originally, I was, you know, I I cut the thumb out because I felt like without that thumb, we're kind of helpless to move our, you know, and that's kind of what it was. It was something that was bound. Right. You know, so it it did have a symbolic kind of metaphorical meaning, but also I do this series called Secrets, which are these little smaller pouch forms and large secrets too, without the string form on them, and it's meant to hold something that's hidden, this hidden history. Right beside Sonia Kelleher Combs's work, overlooking it really, is a vast wall painted a vibrant earthy red and it's adorned with high-resolution images from the Amazon region. Some photos were taken in the forest and some in the city. Some depict the wonder of the wilderness, others the stark horrors of a landfill. And they're not only stunning in their own right as photographs, they're also performances. There's a particular figure, a being, a kind of shapeshifter in each of them. My name is Wira. I'm 31 years old. I live in Manaus, in Amazonia states in Brazil. I'm an indigenous person in diaspora. Um, I am a transgender person. 
two spirit person. I'm a biologist and master in ecology. And I also work as a visual artist and educator. Wira, who uses they them pronouns, uses natural materials to transform themselves, to dress up into a manifestation of and a bridge to the various life forms in their midst. Each manifestation of Wira is unique. What I do is basically to tell stories about people, animal, plants, and other humanities beyond hegemonic ones. I like to create images not only for art purposes, but also with um, youngsters. Images that can reflect different natures. Two natures in particular, um, those landscapes of everyday life that are full of violence that we are often calling natural, like the violence against trans people and indigenous people, and also the devastation of forests. Because as I understand, the, those forms of violence are the same. The other nature that also I'm interested in is what we more often call nature, is the nature that is over there, far away, in the forest. So that's what I'm doing, telling those stories so we can reflect and think about those different natures. The idea behind Arctic Amazon had been gestating for a long time. I'm Gerald McMaster. I am Plains Cree from Red Pheasant uh, First Nations. That's where I was born and raised, but I am a citizen of the Siksika Nation in Alberta. And I am the professor at OCAD University. I have been curating uh, for 40 years. I uh, first began thinking about this idea many years ago when I was working in Australia and visiting some of the indigenous communities in the central desert. Uh, one community in particular was called Papunya. They're what they call desert painters. And what I began to notice was this uh, highly systematic way of distribution of production for on the in the communities. Uh, notice the artists were not school trained. Their entrepreneurs uh, in the cities would take canvases out to the communities on weekends or once a month and, and leave canvases there and pick up a fresh batch and take them back in and distribute them around the world. What I saw in that immediately reminded me of what was going on in the Canadian Arctic. And I, I thought, there's an exhibition here somewhere. That's where, this, to me, the seeds were sowed. My interest, my focus, I wanted to shift that from Australia to the Americas. Because the Americas, uh, certainly uh, from our point of view in the English-speaking world of North America, Central and South America being Latin America is such a tremendous distance from here, even though they're right, our neighbors. Whereas Australia and New Zealand seem much closer, linguistically for that reason, but 
culturally still very distant. So I think this notion of connecting the Americas was what was more appealing to me. And I thought, we'll design something where we work with artists and not care about what the Western art world, I put that in quotation marks, thinks about what, what artists are doing. Because that's been a history of a kind of uh, oppression in the art world, if you will. So I felt maybe, well, let's just move the dial a little bit and start thinking, not always in relation to the Western art world, but rather an indig from the indigenous world, right? And discover that by introducing indigenous ways of seeing, all of a sudden we can argue from that point of view. One of the things I've learned from Gerald is this idea of indigenous visual knowledge. Mm -hmm. What kind of associations come up for you when I use that term? Indigenous visual knowledge. I think it's just something that's innate that you feel and it's a part of something bigger than any of us. You can feel it. Um, it's just a way of seeing and knowing, even learning. You know, you're not being, no one's harping fr from the pulpit like, telling you, like making you memorize all this stuff, you learn it through your body, you know, it's just a way of, of learning and seeing. I remember I did this one piece and, and it has a lot of like fur in it that's embedded into it and that's saturated with this color that's really vibrant, red, and it was very, it's a very beautiful piece. And what it reminds me of or feels like to me is like when we harvest a moose, you know, when we're hunting moose, I, I feel like it's joyous because it's so, such an important, when we were kids, we would ha live on rice and beans if we couldn't get a moose, you know, kind of, it was that important. And um, it was always, it's a family thing. We would do it together, you know, take care of it. Um, and it's also a very spiritual thing too. So that piece always reminded me of that. But other people would be like, they, they thought it was a pretty piece or whatever. But they, all they could think of was like this fur embedded in this thing and it had to be gross, you know. I was like, but it's so beautiful, you know. It's just this different way of thinking and seeing. So nobody wants to know where their meat comes from. Yeah. Nobody does. Yeah. I'm like, at least our meat, you know, we know where it came from and we harvested it. We took care of it. There are some things that people do bring to to the work that I think is kind of funny, like make these little things that people think are phalluses or whatever you want to call it. I always think of my those those shapes as both male and female, though, because there's an inside and an outside. So I just remember the first time, um, like especially with the idiot strings piece, because it's so. Um, because it's about suicide, you know, that's that's what the original pieces were about. But I remember these two women coming into a gallery in Portland and um, and they were just laughing so hard because they knew they were idiot strings and she, they just thought it was funny because it is kind of funny because that's what your mom made you wear like for your whole. But then it is like serious. It's like drawing you in with humor and then also like telling you this is also very serious. You know, there's a reason for those idiot strings and you know was that something you 
conveyed to them? I did, actually. And then they were shocked and kind of a little bit embarrassed that they thought it was funny. And I was like, it's okay, you know. I I love juxtaposing things that are very different, like making a really beautiful painting that's kind of glowing and putting hair on it. There's hair embedded within it. And people have problems with hair. I don't know what the deal is, but I use hair a lot. Um, so people will be drawn in and then they're actually physically repulsed because there's hair on it, you know, that kind of idea. Or realizing that it's made from something like seal intestine. Like people have a different relationship with those kinds of materials. Mm. So, yeah. Do you remember the moment when you just needed to become Wira? Good question. Wira <laughs> uh, is more... Uh, in theater, people call her um, a character. In psychology, people call her um, my alter ego. In the LGBT movement, it's a drag queen. Uh, a drag queen is what I like the most, but for me, of course, is not only a drag queen. I like to think of Wira as more than a drag queen, more of an entity. Não necessariamente religião, anti-religião. But that has nothing to do with religion. Eu gosto de entender o ira como uma expressão. An expression of my spirit is a way of talking to my ancestors. So there isn't a particular moment in time. I feel like Wira is with me since I was born. So maybe it was my skin that transformed and gained these leaves around 2016. Em 2016, momento de um golpe no estado do Brasil, onde. So it was a time where Brazil was going through a political coup. And so there was a lot of artists gathering around to defend the Ministry of Culture um, because it was taken down. So there was a, a gathering of artists and it was a time where I realized the strength, the potence of art to defend those uh, political matters and the power of art to communicate between worlds. It was very pressing times. It was times where it was really important to to show yourself, to do something. But it was also time to show all the living things, the beauty of things. And that was the time where I needed to uh, start thinking and discussing these different natures. Também mostrar as nossas potências, as nossas belezas, das coisas vivas. Daí que surgem as histórias das diferentes naturezas. As periferias... Periferias are places where the state is planting the opposite of hope. When I say periphery, I'm not talking only about the margins of a city, but also in the middle of the Amazon. I'm talking about the margins of the rivers and the margins of the villages, 
I'm talking about places where people have little or none access to things like health and care. We grow up with all this lacking and also a big crisis of like self-esteem because we suffer all this erasing and deconsideration through all these years, since the first years of colonization. So my narrative uh, is similar to all these young people I work with, and I like to tell this story. And I've been through so many transformations, and these are due to some special teachers and professors that I had on the on my trajectory que foi transformada a lot of my work is it is about community it is about place um, even though it is me making this work it's and and saying that I know that there's this kind of push and pull of like I can't speak for all of my community I never could um, yeah obviously it's coming directly from me but sometimes it's not my personal experience sometimes it's my relatives experience that, that can't say these things which is really difficult you know it's really really hard it's hard for them to say it or it's hard for you to think, carry that in i think both i mean sometimes when you're too close to it you you can't say it yeah or do it it's important to acknowledge that there are these structures that are literally in control of the land. You know, there's this hierarchy of ownership. And even though we have rights in Alaska to the surface rights to our land, we don't have mineral rights to the land underneath there. So it's it becomes really complicated when you begin to think about things like the oil industry in Alaska and how our communities have been subsisting literally off of the oil industry now for almost four generations. You know, they've been up there. It's not black and white because, you know, we depend on that industry. And so it's a slippery slope. You have to figure out a way to, for our people to continue to survive in a way that um, we hadn't in the past. So it's, it's hard. It's really, really hard. These places where we've been westernized, a lot of ills are there, you know. It's uh, interesting. You can kind of tell the way that the church came in. That's one of our colonizers, and it's something I've been thinking about for a long time. But they divided our state up by denomination, and you can tell which denomination was where by suicide rates and things like that. You know, the sicker the villages that have more kind of social problems, alcoholism, a lot of mental illness, things like that. A lot of them, you know, those are Catholic villages. I was raised Catholic, you know. Um, there's all sorts of different kind of, or where different industries, where the language is strong is where there were less contact, right? Um, things like that. Um, Although certain elements may have been erased by, like, let's say the Moravian church wouldn't let them dance, but they can still speak their language. So it's, just, it's interesting what each denomination decided to focus on. Yeah, language in itself is just such a, a massive... Yeah, I don't speak my language. It's amazing. There's 
so many people here that speak their language. And um, yeah, both of my parents went to boarding school. So they met in Sitka, all the way from Barrow to Sitka, all the way from Nalato to Sitka. For those not familiar with the geography of Alaska, Barrow, now known as Utkiavik, to Sitka is nearly 2,000 kilometers as the crow flies. Nulato to Sitka is about 1,500. Either way, it's an incredibly long way from home. They went to Mount Edgecombe, so one of the boarding schools there. But yeah, and my mom understands, but we never spoke it. She's Athabascan, and my father, he speaks it, but, um, you know, they didn't communicate with each other in a language, so just in English. And there was another school that my mom went to. It was called Pius Pious Mission School in Skagway that burnt down. But they're doing interviews right now with survivors of that place, including one of my uncles is probably going to do an interview there. But we know that, you know, there's the same problems for sure. Yeah. yeah. Children missing. and Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same, like even with the sanitarium, I think that they would send, I think that's what they called the sanitarium. Like they would send people with tuberculosis. My mom's mom died of tuberculosis in the sanitarium. And then she was adopted by her aunt and uncle and raised in their family. And then her two brothers were kind of in an orphanage for a while. The older brothers until they were adopted into another part of the family. And the two sisters were shipped off to family in Missouri. And my mom finally met one of her sisters 46 years later. Yeah. I can't imagine. What, would that have, what was that meeting like for her? I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, um, that feels like such an immense uh, topic. And I know that you... I'm slippery slope. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Um, it's emotional. You know, when we think of the border wall in between that, Mexico yeah. and, and the United States, really, and how those borders really did this exact same thing for all indigenous communities yes. of the Americas. You yeah. just think of all the countries that, what, there are nine countries that border the Amazon. So each one of those is a geopolitical boundary yeah. and it cross cuts all indigenous territories. Yeah. So our cousins are yeah. always on the other side of the border, always. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, think of my brothers and sisters in the Amazon, you know, and just what they're living through now. And it's just, uh, you know, I think even in my lifetime, I think we were going through that when I was young and they're going through it now. And it's really, it's disastrous. And, uh, and I think having contemporary artists address these and think about them and, and, and not always addressing the political issue, they're just telling who they are. Gerald McMaster, lead curator of the exhibition Arctic Amazon, Networks of Global Indigeneity, which was held at the Power Plant Gallery in Toronto. The exhibition also traveled to the Art Gallery of Nova Scotia in Halifax. Ideas is a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, on U.S. Public Radio, across Turtle Island on Sirius XM, 
in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. From Alaska to Brazil, Indigenous artists occupy a present moment between traditions and histories on the one hand and future worlds on the other. We continue with Sean Foley's documentary, Arctic Amazon, Secrets and Visions. So I got to biology and ecology because of the love I always had since I was a kid for the living things. So the six years studying sciences were really important for me because I learned about the forms and methodologies of Western sciences and I learned how to study and understand more about life. I wrote articles, I worked in international research. Basically, I was moving towards keeping the forest alive, uh, standing up. But I felt, and I still feel that this is something that lacks not only for me, but to the whole society, a better articulation between science and the general population. Scientific knowledge is still produced by a really small group inside really small spaces that have really high walls. So I realized that it would need a lot more than scientific articles and numbers to bring people's love for the forest. That's why I became a tree to remind, first of all, myself, but then our people, and eventually everyone else as well, that we are also plants. Seeing Wira in this form of drag, it's a melding of the human and the natural and the spiritual that I haven't seen before. This new image unseats me from my Western position of separateness. I find myself trying to recall those fleeting moments in nature when I might have felt integrated with my surroundings. The whole Western uh, way of thinking is based on binary divisions. Mm -hmm. You know, like art is something separated from life. That's the base of it. And then you have like, nature and culture, you know, subject and object, all these binary divisions. Brazilian anthropologist Nina Vincent is a co-curator of the exhibition. She's also acting as an interpreter in my conversation with Wira. When you start learning about other cultures, you'll see that those divisions just come off. And you're going to start to see like a whole aesthetic complex 
that is not just about art, it's about their whole life. It's a world that has to be built and rebuilt every day. It's not this idea of nature as something that just exists and is created and then is done. You know, when you don't think like that, you have a world that is that has to be built and rebuilt based on relations that you have to work on those relations every day. The shamans, they're like uh, diplomats, you know, because they have to build this, those relationships between worlds with the spirits, mm. specific spirits that they have to negotiate life to m- try to maintain the world's balance, you know. Noor Ale is associate curator at the power plant. She worked with Gerald and Nina to bring the exhibition to life. Your centric ways of thinking and being are very hierarchical, right? The knowledge seems to be um, a very privileged kind of position, you know, and there's one authority voice. And sometimes the artists are excluded from that, you know, because museums have done these kinds of things in the past, right? When we think about ethnographic museums, the objects are dislocated from their cultures, their communities, right? And then there is a voice that interprets this, but doesn't integrate the voice of the community. There is no consultation. Mm. So when you work in this very contemporary context, it's important to have a, a, a relationship based on trust and and friendship, right? And, uh, yeah. And among the three of you, you really were able to develop that? Like, Absolutely. just a way of... The way that we worked, I, I can't, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, f- Gerald and Nina, feel free to speak about I this. lost my power. Yeah. But it was a beautiful way of working, you know, it's... Um, it, it, it was beautiful. It was all part of the orchestra of this. You know, it's multiple voices, multiple lived experiences, realities, histories, all kind of coming together from north to south relations, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what's important. There was no hemispheric divide that Gerald kind of mentioned. When you think about North America, you know, and Latin America, there's this kind of like divisionary mm-hmm. concept. Like it's as if they're divided, but in reality, it just courses, Forest is often referred to, like in school books or even common sense on the streets, as natural resource. Naturais, distantes da gente. Natural as something distant, separated from us. E recursos para serem utilizados, consumidos, levados embora. And resource as something for consumption. This is ideas that show how we are not connected to the forest. Those are an old set of ideas. You can find those ideas on the Christian Bible and whatnot. So you have passages on the Bible that talk about plants and animals and how you should use them. And in many other references, you have this idea of serving from the nature. If you go see in indigenous societies, you're going to find animals like a bird, for instance. It can be a relative. It's some part of us. It can be a part of the family. Creating this connection with other worlds and other living forms, it is uh, urgent and necessary in these times we are living so it's not only an anthropocentric society, but it's also a society of men. 
So now if we look at the worlds, at the planet, either we look from inside or the outside, we have crises spread all over it. Crises. Environmental, political, cultural, social, spiritual crises, all kinds of crises. And until now, who is sitting on the power chairs of the world has been white, cisgender males. Então já vimos que não deu certo, né? So we can say that this is not working. My mom was always making stuff because we didn't have a lot of money, so she made a lot of our clothes. She, you know, mended everything. You know, she was always sewing or beading or doing something and gathering. I mean, I think that is is, is something that fuels the work that I make. Um, so I think when I learned how to do things like sew and bead and I, I didn't want to do those, I but I did, I learned them, you know, and it was later in life that I was like, I realized how important those things were and how they influenced, you know, it came below and kind of infiltrated the work that I make. You know, I was trained in a Western ideal of art. I went to college, you know, I went to graduate school and all of that, but all these other things kept on creeping back in and I tried to keep them separated, you know. It is urgent that other humanities have voice and be heard and can actually effectively participate of this planet making. Other humanities that have a lot of interesting and important stories to tell, but that their own stories have been told until now by all those same people. Women, LGBT people, indigenous people, black people, we all have to be able to participate more in this world. But more than only other humanities, we also need to listen to uh, the stories of other species, other living things that can contribute, inspire and collaborate a lot to this world. Some of the um, the things, the, the making that you had within you from growing up would keep creeping back in, I think is the mm-hmm. term you used, but and then you, you felt you needed to keep that separate. Do you remember when that you were just were like, okay, all right. It was in graduate school. I went to school at Arizona State University. I was there for three years and I came home every summer. I almost quit. I called my husband. I was like, I can't do this anymore. This is just, and he said, you are doing this. <laughs> You're, you have to do this. You know, he's talked me off the ledge. And there's this thing called a 15-hour review. You take 15 hours, 15 credit hours. So it's a year actually, that you're on kind of a probationary status. Then you do an oral defense with the whole department, pretty much. And I was, like, so nervous. And my aunt and uncle were in town, and we went, my roommate and I, to have lunch. And on our way home, we got into a car wreck. And the next day was my 15-hour review. You know, we got checked out. You know, I had a Miss America bruise across my chest and two black eyes and broke my sunglasses and I still have scars on my knees, but I was alive, you know, and it was such 
a pivotal moment. It was like, it gave me all the perspective in the world. I was like, these people don't have any power over me. I know who I am. And after that, I, I did what I needed to do. And there was no separation. After that first year, I brought back all these natural materials that came from my home and I hung them in the studio for a while. At first, I just would emulate those. Like I have a walrus stomach and I would make a synthetic walrus stomach and then I would show them together or juxtapose them. And then they began to combine. Um, Before I went to graduate school, I thought, you know, I was never going to go back and live in Alaska. Yeah, so... It, clarif- it clarified, it was like, I needed to be back there because that's where everything is, you know. Not just my family, the community, but the land. Yeah. yeah. Each animal or plant has its own life story and they're absolutely very inspiring for the world. Pachubinha é uma árvore que anda. For example, pachubinha. Pachubinha is a walking tree. This tree just breaks any colonial imaginary about trees because she walks about 20 meters per year going to find what she needs. So dance will be extasiated to look at this tree. The science will be blown away. Us, in our daily lives, that we are so inert, so so stopped, so still, we should look at this tree going after what she needs. And we have to, we have a lot to learn. And that's only one story in the middle of a whole forest. And this is the forest, but it's also in the garden, in the lawn, right there outside. But it's not going to just start speaking if we don't stop and pay attention. They don't desire or want or need to be our teachers. We have to be the good students, the good learners. That's what Wira does, is try to mediate to help this process to happen, this connection to happen. Telling these stories with the body, because apparently people are not willing to listen to these stories on their own. Being on the land, there's, you know, something happens out there. It's usually a communal thing you know you're with your family or your friends and you're gathering you know material and processing it some things have to be you can't do by yourself and it's really important to have somebody with you to do those things um like processing walrus stomach or seal intestine things like that you know twining those idiot strings is not a one-person job stitching those little tiny, small, red, white, and blue secrets. You know, my mom has helped me with those and other friends have. We sit, it's like a sewing circle. And something amazing happens when you bring people together and um, we could solve all the world's problems in that little tiny group. And in the context of the work that's 
that's made um, and the things that it's invested with, whether it's the contact of many hands, uh, whether it's the, the material that you've gathered uh, from the land, um, this becomes a carrier of meaning on so many different levels. Absolutely. It is about, you know, our relationship to each other and to the land, walking softly on the land and treating each other with respect and um, honoring those gifts that have been given to you. What else could I say? I want to say something about healing, but. <laughs> well, I wonder maybe, maybe if I ask about the, <laughs> the pouches, if, mm. if, you know, there are these containers, what do you, what would you say is inside there? It's everybody's secrets. It's all the stuff that's hidden. That's really hard to talk about that we've tucked away and sometimes put a mask on and pretend it's not there. You know, we go out in the world and everything's okay, but you know, there's things that we need to let go of so that we can move on until we open up those wounds and clean them out. They're not going to heal all the way. Just as you'd find on a little pair of mittens, the idiot strings join the pairs of small pouches, matching sets, except for one thing, a spray of red threads pouring from one pouch in each pair. And in the idiot strings piece, you have that one side. Yeah, with the thread. With the thread, yeah. which indicates there's a healing process going yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, stitching and mending, it's like repair. And that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. But also it's it's like flowing out at the same time, allowing it to to leave, to go. We're all soft, you know. So it, it we can we can get hurt easily. But at the same time, if it's fragile, we can break it open and, and let it go, you know, if it's if we're at the right space, the right place. Yeah. The other side is fully repaired. It's there's no, you know, there's no scar. And maybe it's before and maybe it's after. I'm not sure, but um, hopefully both. You know. Well, because the two are connected, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's our history and our future. Gerald, you wrote, for so long we've been marginalized. But I would argue it is because our starting point has always been within the framework defined by the Western art world. My concluding question is this, what would result if our starting point were within the philosophical or intellectual traditions of indigenous communities? What reflections do you have on that question? Well, if we had, if we had always been there, then we wouldn't have had uh, residential schools we wouldn't have had uh, young artists today trying to recover, reconstitute, uh, repatriate, um, reclaim all that has been erased and taken away. And if we just shift that perspective and think about the communities from where we come from, as we, as we go to universities, we really learn hard, you know, in those spaces. But similarly, we have, when we go back to our communities, think of it as a university, because our teachers, our professors, 
our knowledge keepers are there. You know, that's that's why they're there. Let's learn from them and and really, really study hard. I think artists are really capitalizing on that and thinking about that really deeply. And I think that that's good. And I think the exhibition really draws that out. Mm-hmm. We're talking a lot about the reclaiming, right? The indigenizing. And there's a lot of work to do, you know, from institutions, museums, governmental bodies to, you know, impart this knowledge and also support their Indigenous communities at all levels possible and being very humble as well. The West needs to be humble and adaptable and it has a lot of unlearning to, to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One, one thing that always comes to my mind when I listen to Gerald and everyone talking about this reclaiming and all this re-words mm-hmm. <laughs> is that in the Amazonian region, there's still a lot of people living there that are not on the re-process. They are still living the way they always lived. And this is so rare if you take the whole planet. And this is so precious. And they are like so menaced. There are so many threats. And this is such an urgent thing to protect them. (laughs) Not everything is about gaining space in the Western system. So there has to be these two possibilities, changing the Western system, indigenizing this, but also the possibility of living apart from that. And this is precious and rich, is the possibility of multiple worlds, you know. Wira was at the Arctic Amazon Symposium in Toronto in 2019. Their presentation was a newsflash from Brazil. It was also an exhortation. Brazil is repeating dictatorship. Once again, denying reality. Once again, attacking art, freedom of being, freedom of speech. Once again, the better model is the one that misinforms, that confuses people, that harms people. It's a blind patriotism. It's a part of Brazil that puts God above everything. And unfortunately, this God is not the mythological figure, but rather Bolsonaro, the president. He was elected in 2019. Bolsonaro sought re-election in 2022 and lost. He undermined the electoral process. His supporters stormed government buildings in a coup attempt. He declared his intention to run for president again in 2024, but was barred by the courts from seeking election in any capacity until 2030. He has no idea of the size of the Amazon. He has no idea of the size of the Arctic. He has no idea of the size of the interactions, the impact that these groups together can make. In Brazil, people are anxious. They have anguish within them. We all feel this way. And this entire scenario favors despair. Despair is not something good. It neutralizes us. It stops us from moving. And we don't have this option right now. We must continue feeling. If you don't feel, if your spirit is not living, then you are supporting violence. We must guide those feelings using other forces and other spirits.
In 2019, durante o simpósio aqui. In 2019, when I was here for the Arctic Amazon Symposium, I had never seen uh, indigenous forms of life that was so radically different from what I knew before. And I think for um, the Arctic people that were part of the symposium, it was the same. As diferenças são bonitas. Tal qual são as semelhanças? Differences are beautiful, but just as much as similarities. Então começamos a enxergar. So as then we started to see those similarities. Not only uh, the similarities of colonial forces that affected our histories, um, the violence that affected our territories. Mas também toda é, a me emocionou muito. Was very uh, moved and I get emotional remembering about the similarities because um, I realized that the faith on our resistance was just the same. Era igualzinho. <laughs> Nos encontramos é, nesse abraço, né? So we met in this hug, the space of a, a hug, because we were both people that had um, a vast knowledge of millennia of living in our territory and all that comes with it. So I think that differences have the power to bring us closer and they are the way to survive in this world because this world is gone, it's done. But to build new worlds that allow indigenous people to survive, to live, worlds that are possible uh, have to be built through difference. It's the only way possible. Com isso, assim. On Ideas, you've been listening to Arctic Amazon, Secrets and Visions, produced by Sean Foley, featuring the artists Sonia Kelleher-Combs and Duida Sodoma, curators Gerald McMaster, Nina Vincent, and Noor Ale. Special thanks to Beverly Cheng at the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery. Arctic Amazon Networks of Global Indigeneity is available in book form, published by Goose Lane Editions. Reading by Nahid Mustafa. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Lisa Godfrey. Our executive producer is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.